Let's face it, whether you're hiring or trying to find work today, the process has become tougher than ever. Between ghost listings, AI-powered applicant tracking systems, and job scams, how do you know if your resume or your job posting is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or your recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Eric Thompson. Eric is an entrepreneur, a maker, and a futurist. He's currently the assistant director of the Spellman Innovation Lab and the co-director of the Blackstone Launchpad at Spellman College in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi. Yes, I'm Eric Thompson. I'm the assistant director of the Spelman College Innovation Lab, and I'm the co-director of the Blackstone Launchpad at Spelman College. I'm also a strategic advisor for my partner's business, Eat Unrestricted, where we make vegan cheddar cheese sauce. And I'm also an entrepreneur and innovator in my own right. That's a lot. That's a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) A couple (laughs) things there for sure. (laughs) How did last semester go at Spelman? It went really good. It was a whirlwind. We ran a ton of programming in the innovation lab last semester, including one of our signature programs from last semester was our HBCU Game Jam, spearheaded by JC Holmes. Basically, we had a hackathon where I think we had like 23 HBCU schools sent teams to the AUC Wow! and built a game, built games over a 24-hour period. They used everything from RPG Maker to Unity to put together concepts, games, functional games over that time period. And we had, you know, a competition at the end. And it was really empowering, you know, just seeing what these students could create in such a short amount of time. You know, everything from story and game theory into 3D and 2D assets and putting the 
the mechanics together into game engines. It was really impressive. So game development is one of the verticals that we've developed an innovation lab that came out of the pandemic because we needed a needed something that students could innovate and create with that wasn't an in-person maker space. So that was one of the things we did. And then, you know, entrepreneurship has grown quite a bit at Spelman over the, the past few years as well. You know, I'm the advisor for the Entrepreneurs Club in our Blackstone Launchpad. We took some students to Battle of the Brains in Austin during South by Southwest. We had our Spelpreneur competition. We have been kicking off with the Center for Black Entrepreneurship, which is a collaboration between Morehouse and Spelman to kind of bolster all the entrepreneurship programming and ecosystem and and get our students beyond just the, the four walls of the schools and into the community, into the broader entrepreneurship ecosystem. Just the, our standard kind of a situation at the Innovation Lab where we have students making everything from future fashion to eco-friendly packaging for cosmetic products and students who are graphic designers and animators and everything under the sun. We're kind of like a one-stop shop. That's One-stop shop is like the worst thing you can say as a designer, but <laughs> <laughs> we're the one-stop shop for creative and innovative entrepreneurial endeavors on campus, you know, and we try to make sure that everybody feels at home in the space. So workshops relating to everything from laser cut business cards to building your own interactive robots to working with emerging AI tools to further your artistic filmmaking animation journeys. So we do a lot. Wow. That, that is a lot. <laughs> it's an exhausting semester. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I have like a dozen questions that I want to ask just from that, but I'm curious really about the game jam. I mean, yeah. 23 HBCU sent teams to Spelman. Was that the first time Spelman had done a game jam? Yeah, this was the first time the program was run. So this was kind of like the brainchild of um, JC Holmes, Dr. Volsey. And Basically, is an event to kind of build the profile of what HBCUs are doing in these spaces. Um, I think so often when people talk about gaming and HBCUs, um, it defaults to esports. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, especially in a place like Georgia, where the entertainment industry is such a big part of the local economy, esports is a huge opportunity space for students, right? But we also want to make sure that our students are on the creative side of the funnel. Mm-hmm. Here, actually developing the games, developing the assets, writing the stories. And that's something that we've been focused on in the innovation lab is kind of building students up as creators, you know, upskilling them, writing code, learning how to do 3D modeling, learning. We even have a game theory class. You know, we have a professor who's an, a lifelong D&D DM mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and teaching game theory to students so that they understand what really are the core components of a good game, of a good interactive story. This is what the Game Jam was kind of raising the profile for. And we have several classes also associated with this vertical. So we have a game design class. We have a class called interactive storytelling. We have creative coding. You know, students use P5JS to create interactive games and stories and experiences of all sorts. And then, like I said, the game theory class, we have a mixed reality club, which kind of works with anything from, you know, Unity to RPG Maker throughout the semester. And we have researcher students who work on projects that involve virtual reality training, 
mixed reality, even projects, you know, some of these students work on collaborative projects with other departments like literature and uh, the creative writing department and, you know, even experiences to tell the history of Spelman and so on. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have projects with Georgia Tech. It, it, It ranges, but, you know, all things in this space, Unity being a very central software to a lot of what we do in these programs. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's a big, a big push right now in the innovation lab. And it fits in because, like I said, Georgia is very big into these creative industries, whether it be video games, but even film. And I mean, on the film side, the, the skills are, are very transferable from what we're already doing. Right. So that's something that personally I am over this summer, I'm kind of putting together a framework for what that might look like of getting some of these same students who are doing this work in Unity, who are learning how to create these stories, who are developing these assets, how to get them more involved in the film industry locally as well. So that's something we're working on as well. I have to say this as a as a Morehouse alum, it does not surprise me that Spellman is like <laughs> light years ahead. I don't, I don't know if I can even say light years ahead of Morehouse because I don't I don't really know what they're doing at Morehouse. But I just know I remember when I was a student in yikes, nineteen ninety nine. Spellman was it. Spellman was like had the Sun Microsystems computers. I think we had some also as well. But like we took all our programming classes at Spellman. I was um I came in the summer as part of the the Project Space program, which I don't even know if Morehouse still has that. But like, I think right. Spellman had it too. It might've been called something different, but it's when you basically, if you're a STEM major, you can intern at two NASA facilities for two summers. And then afterwards, I think the goal is like, oh, you could go and work for NASA. Unfortunately for us, this happened right before 9-11. So that right. did not happen for oh, me. No. But... We took all our programming classes at Spelman and Spelman had like the decked out computer lab. And yeah. I was just like, why don't we have this at Morehouse? It was like going to Spelman and it was the future. And then we would come back to Morehouse and it's like uh, the projects at so, good times. Like what is good? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to it exactly. I do. A lot of students do come into the innovation lab and like especially Morehouse students. The way I have the innovation lab structure, it's supposed to be like chairs, you know, like the uh-huh. bar, like where everybody knows, you know, it's a third place. That's how I, I organize it. Right. Oh, okay. I want it to be a place where students feel welcome and like they want to be rather than they're just there for a class. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> more students always come in. They're like, yo, Spelman's always got the stuff. Yeah. How do y'all have this space? And we don't. But I have some really great colleagues over at Morehouse. Obviously, Tiffany Bussey over at MIEC, the Morehouse Innovation Entrepreneurship Center. Mm-hmm. But also, Brian, who is running the Morehouse Makerspace, they have put in a tremendous amount of effort to rebuilding their makerspace on campus. And, and so I think that that should be ramping up this coming semester. I think they just opened at the end of last semester. Okay. And they've come and talked with us, folks from their makerspace, who, you know, even some of their students are our regulars. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're taking a lot of notes and applying some of those same things to how they're building out their space, because traditionally their makerspace was really focused on STEM engineering students and competitions. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, as I just mentioned, the Spelman Innovation Lab functions like a third space where students of all disciplines can come in and feel like they can just hang out and have discussions at our at our big table where we host our informal Innovation Lab podcast that's never recorded, but always involves good conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so they're building out the capabilities over there. And, and I think that's important because uh, 
we want to kind of decentralize out some of the things that we do, yeah, you know, out of the space and and let some of the best practices that have worked for us go other places, even if they have to be adapted to different populations. See, I didn't even know Morehouse had a maker space, so you put me onto something there. Yes, the Morehouse Maker Exploration Lab. I want to say that's what it's called, but yeah, it's coming on. It's coming along. Um, they they've had it, but they're really trying to revamp it. And rejuvenate it now. So I think that's good. I think it's important. Okay. So So you mentioned the innovation lab being this this third place. And I I absolutely love that concept, especially now as we're sort of emerging out of this pandemic. And I think we've seen a general erosion of third spaces. Why did Spellman decide to create this kind of lab? The initial motivation and to be frank, I wasn't there at the very beginning when it first came online, but it, it's taken many iterations because it's it's moved like this is the fourth location. It's going to be moving again soon to our new building. Okay. But the initial motivation was that interdisciplinary work is important. It, it was even eight years ago, it was kind of a, apparent that the world where a student kind of gets one career and stays in that career their whole life and retires, that is not the reality for everybody anymore. Mm-hmm. Students, especially at a liberal arts college, are already encouraged to have a broad exposure to a variety of different areas. Dr. Volsi and you know his colleagues in the art department and some of the STEM departments, you know, I guess they felt like it was necessary to create the space where makers could come together and work on interdisciplinary projects, no matter what their background is. I feel like it should be a natural occurrence at a liberal arts school, Mm -hmm. right? Where broad collaboration is already encouraged. Well, why not apply that to making and technology and innovation? So I think that was a lot of the initial motivation. You know, obviously personalities involved are a big, (laughs) a big uh, part of the initial kind of mandate, you know? So Jerry, he's obviously a creator, a maker. He's a a Georgia Tech PhD and worked at Bell Labs. And so this was his natural playground that being able to take some of the stuff that, you know, starts and stops in the classroom, but take it out of the classroom and make it a place that students can do it in a co-curricular fashion. Yeah. I think that was a lot of the initial motivation. And then, you know, when President Mary Schmidt Campbell became president of the college, that just kind of got like boosted, like turbocharged because she's coming from running the NYU Tisch School of the Arts and, you know, working with the ITP program over at NYU. So she's seeing that, okay, we have kind of this nascent innovation collective starting. Let's just put more effort into growing that because, you know, in her mind, you know, that's also the future art technology steam Mm -hmm. that it just makes sense. It's where things are going. So that was also a big help. And so she just retired last year. So she was a great advocate for our space as we tried to grow it over the years. I mean, I think it's really great to see this type of uh, expansion on curriculum and and even like this expansion on just like interdisciplinary space for students at HBCUs. And I mean, I'm pulling from my own personal experience here. I mean, when I came in, in 99, I was a dual degree major. I was computer science, computer engineering. And the yeah. only reason, well, it was two reasons. The first reason was because I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne from a different world. 
that was the first reason. But the second reason was because I had already started learning or teaching myself, I should say, teaching myself HTML in high school. So right. by the time I got to college, I already knew how to make a web page in like right. 1999. Like I, I remember making the first project space website for the scholarship program. And wow. in my mind, cause I didn't know, I mean, I was 18. I'm like, Oh yeah, you do web design on a computer. So why not study computer science thinking that it was just like a direct kind of <laughs> a direct path to take. Right. And I remember my advisor at the time, Dr. Jones, who's, who's passed on now, but I remember him saying like, you know, if this is what you want to do, you should probably change your major. Cause like the internet is a fad. This isn't going to be around. If this is what you want to do, you should probably like not look at computer science because that's not what we do here. Like at the time, I I mean, but at the time it was all, it was like programming and assembly. It was doing a lot of like, I guess you could call it hardcore computer science work, but it was doing work on like SGI boxes and Java and all that sort of stuff. And I'm guessing like this is like right after dot-com crash, right? Yeah, this is like the fall of 99. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fall as in the autumn, not the fall. You know what I mean? But like it's in 1999. And uh, I did. I changed my major that next semester in 2000 to math because I was like, I do really like web design, but if I'm not going to be able to pursue it in any sort of fashion, then like, why am I sitting in this class trying to learn C++? Like, this is not going to get me any closer to where I want to go. Not that math did either, but I liked math better. And I had more credits and I was like, I did the math. I, I literally did the math and was like, oh, I could graduate like a semester early if I just switch over to math. So I did and I did. But I wish that that kind of stuff was around. then. although that was really just, I think, a consequence of the fact that the Internet and technology was still in such a nascent space that yeah. you couldn't have this type of environment to learn unless you went to a more specialized school. And that may be also a big part of it, right? Just kind of a realization that, especially right now, I mean, it's, it's very apparent, but like where students are going is, is changing mm-hmm. so much. And maybe those were lessons learned seeing that, you know, maybe maybe that was something that the folks at Morehouse like say like, yo, this was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Right? We could have been ahead of the game on this. We had the infrastructure to be ahead of the game on this. You know, like I went to like, there was like a secret VR research lab that like was heavy in existence in the 90s at Clark. Like, mm. they were doing work in VR, uh, basically equivalent of VR training and metaverse in the late 90s, mid and late 90s. And their lab spaces are still there, but it's just like, hasn't been touched. But I was just saying, it's, the schools might have looked at this and been like, hey, these are missed opportunities. And, and it might be helpful to have an engine on campus that is not just a space for innovation for the students but also kind of a driver of thinking differently about where our students are going for faculty and staff on campus. Mm. So for instance, like the innovation lab, it's not purely a a student facing space. It is open to staff and faculty and we actively encourage staff and faculty to come and participate. And one of the advantages is that we have staff and faculty that are experts in their own fields, but maybe not experts in everybody else's field. And there's an idea exchange among them. And then we also, you know, the people who are staffing the innovation lab can suggest trends and things that are informative to staff and faculty on campus. And, And so what ends up happening is the third place effect 
doubles, not just for students, but for faculty. And the students sometimes, you know, jog ideas to the faculty. Yeah. Right. And the faculty jog ideas to the students outside of the typical classroom context where it's a respectful but still more pair kind of pair facing relationship where ideas are exchanged at the big table. And overall, the hope is that this brings people up to what's going on in the world. And this has been more very apparent now with the AI stuff yeah, or, or even the mixed reality stuff, because we have, for instance, that same physics professor that teaches our game theory class is using Unity to teach. He's putting it together uh, modules in Unity that will demonstrate and teach physics hmm. to students. He had never worked in Unity before. Not only is now he exposed to this game creation engine, but he'll probably expose his students to it as they're learning physics. So it becomes an engine of staying up to date with the latest actions on campus. So I think that's also kind of, it's kind of a, an indirect, but very important effect of what, like why these kind of spaces are necessary Yeah, on campuses. Cause you know, obviously campuses are always centers of innovation, but internally, even a campus can become stagnant in its approach to education and academia. And yeah, I think more than ever, we need to like be considerate of, you know, how technology and how cultural shifts are changing the way we teach mm-hmm. or how or the way we have to teach. I mean, I, I went to Morehouse in the late 90s and early 2000s, so I know about a stagnant <laughs> I know about what it is to be on a on kind of a, a stagnant college campus with, with respect right. to that sort of stuff. So I think it's fascinating that this place is also somewhere that staff and faculty can be a part of. So now it's almost like this this forum where there's this exchange of ideas and it's facilitated yep. by the technology and, and stuff that's in there. That's fascinating. Yep, that's how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's what I, I've always wanted that space. I've, I've always enjoyed that those spaces the most. Those are spaces that inspire me. In undergrad, we kind of had it a little bit when I was at Rowan. We had a, a space where it was a machine shop and a projects lab for the mechanical engineers, but it just felt like a community. We had a small class. It was only like 30 of us. Mm-hmm. But we were in there making our stuff, figuring out our problems. Hey, I don't know why this isn't working. Here, let me show you. Uh, re, you know, Maybe recut this, this lever arm, right? Playing music, sharing memes. It was informal, but it was good, you know? And, and I've always enjoyed those places. I feel like those are places that inspire me the most, and those are places where I'll spend the most time. There's more stuff that I really want to touch on about the lab but since you mentioned rowan let's kind of shift the conversation and learn more about you so tell me about where you grew up yeah so i grew up in um new jersey central jersey down the street from rutgers university actually um, okay. in piscataway i grew up near a college town but it was a great place to grow up i always describe like when people ask you like like describe your neighborhood growing up i always say like imagine like alabama but like if you put Alabama, like in New Jersey, but like Alabama in New Jersey in the middle of like Ahmedabad, India. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) My neighborhood was like a kind of, it was a suburbanizing, formerly rural black neighborhood Mm -hmm. surrounded by a lot of Indian enclaves. Interesting. It was very like 
diverse ethnically and socioeconomic town, which mm-hmm. I thought was really cool growing up. You know, it, we all went to the same high school, so created like a, I feel like there was a lot of equity there. Yeah. And, you know, it's right next to Rutgers University, which is also like a super diverse university. So kind of it puts your worldview, even in high school, you know, but even like growing up, I was always interested in inventing. Like since I was young, I wanted to be an inventor. So I guess I, this is like my keystone. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like creating, wanting to create and make things. And so like, even in high school, I took electricity and electronics class, which was, it was a vocational technology class because it it was teaching students how to become like electricians. Uh But the professor who was one of my, I mean, the teacher who was one of my favorite teachers, he all really taught a lot of electrical theory as well. Like stuff that most people, like most electrical engineers wouldn't learn till like freshman, sophomore year of college. And so it, the class was like, it was interesting because the class was like a weird mix of like students who were like really hands-on Votech students and then like honors AP physics type students <laughs> in the same class. So I took that class for three years and then I did orchestra my birth, my fourth year. Yeah. And then uh, that was a, that, that sum up K through 12 real quick there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you definitely had an early interest in, in tech. I mean, I feel like you would have to end up going to study mechanical engineering, which is what you did at Rowan. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny. I was talking with Jerry, my colleague, about the other day. He was, we were talking about like, yeah, I did a mechanical engineer. I like, we both did mechanical engineering. He was like, yeah, mechanical engineering is like the liberal arts of engineering field. I was like, exactly. That's why I did it. I was like. <laughs> How so? How is it the liberal so, arts of engineering? Yeah. Like mechanical engineering is the broadest of the engineering fields. Like you literally, of the four major engineering fields, right? There's electrical, computer, right? Chemical, mechanical, and civil engineering. Mm-hmm. Mechanical engineers have to learn a little bit of all those other engineering fields. Whereas, like, you won't normally expect, like, you know, electrical or chemical engineer to learn, like, mechanical design. Mechanical engineers have to learn electrical design. So we really touch on a lot of different things, subjects more so, I mean, in my opinion, more so than, like, a chemical engineer, right? So mechanical engineers really can diversify, like, into any engineering field kind of more easily than I think any, you know, other things or doing other things like, you know, managerial positions and so on. So, you know, basically, like I was trying to decide between whether I would do electrical or mechanical engineering, because obviously I had like this big pre kind of exposure to electrical engineering work via those classes. And I loved robotics and so on. But I was like, you know, I can do robotics with mechanical engineering and being as I've always been a person with a ton of different ideas and interests, I always pick the fields that give me like the broadest, <laughs> the broadest tray of options mm-hmm. as far as stuff to do. I picked mechanical engineering. I was like, yeah, this will give me the most options of things I can go into. I, I like keeping as many options on the table for me as possible. I, I've just, <laughs> always, I've always like leaned into that jack of all trades title. Even like I remember doing that on my college essays back in the day. Mm-hmm. And like my mom was like, you know, that's like not a good thing, right? Like, you know, like people, when people say jack of all trades, they usually mean like master of none. Yeah. Which means, that's the other which, half of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, after that point, I was like, I, I always thought this was like a good thing. Like I thought people liked the jack of all trades. And she was like, no, nah, that's not really what it means. It's usually meant disparagingly. 
but I think that's changing now. Obviously, I think I think people are going the opposite direction of like that, right? Of that right now. So I think maybe you know I was ahead of the game on that. Yeah, (laughs) I mean the the thing is funny. You mentioned the jack of all trades thing because I've gotten that as well. Actually, one of the first writing gigs I had online that was my like we all had different handles that we would have. And yeah. mine was jack of all trades or something like that. But, but that phrase about jack of all trades, master of none, that's not even the full phrase. Like the full phrase is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Ah, the truth. <laughs> ah, the secret truth. So, out. so being a generalist helps to like have all that sort of like broad body of knowledge as opposed to being specialized to maybe one particular right. thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it goes in cycles too. You know, I feel like for a long time, yeah, it was valuable to be a specialist. And I remember going into college and going even up until grad school, like people were still preaching specialization. Mm-hmm. It makes you easier to find jobs. It just makes it easier for you to navigate your career path, specialization. But I think, like I said, I think that's going back. The cycle is going back the other way right now. Going deeper, you know, I just feel like humans are naturally, naturally tend to be generalists. We're trained out of generalizing. Mm-hmm. But I think we naturally tend to be generalists, right? Because we're multifaceted individuals who have lots of different interests to explore. I think that's the natural state of things. We're, we're kind of trained to ignore those and focus. And that has its place. But, you know, I don't think it's always the optimal course. So anyway, but that's why I, I chose mechanical engineering. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this will let me continue not not making decisions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not making. <laughs> now, after you graduated, you you stayed in Jersey for a while. You you worked as an engineer. What ended up bringing you to Atlanta? I started working at a construction outfit as a capital projects engineer. Which after I stopped working there, I realized like this is basically the closest thing you get to R&D in the construction industry. Mm-hmm. Like you're basically the skunk works for that construction firm. So I got to like work on like all their newest cranes that they were building out, like equipment projects and so on, you know, be innovative. And, you know, it was cool. I think I just felt like, you know, because while I was doing that, I was still at home playing with Arduinos and trying to build up, you know, products and so on. And so I, I always kind of felt like I was probably going to go back to grad school to do something like, you know, super super innovative, cutting edge technology related. Even though, you know, after having a six month stint on 12 hour night shifts. <laughs> Ooh, that's rough. <laughs> or was it, it was longer than six months, actually. 12 hour night shifts. Yeah. That was also a motivating factor to, to do something different than what I was doing. So, you know, I, I still really am prideful about some of the, like the innovative work I did as a capital products engineer working on some of these really famous cranes and rebuilding them. But, you know, it just wasn't like my passion as far as I didn't want to be pigeonholed into just doing that. So I decided I wanted to go to grad schools and I applied to like, I can't remember, four or five. And I applied to like mechanical engineering PhD programs, but I wasn't really excited about them because, you know, knowing me, right? PhD is like the ultimate like pigeonhole, like focus on one thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were other programs like ITP at NYU and Georgia Tech's HCI program, the MIT Media Lab. And like, I tried to get into Media Lab, didn't get in. And I was like looking at similar programs, like the Georgia Tech program. 
and it was like some I, I was on like a forum like somebody said oh this is kind of similar to media lab they were like you know if you want to do like user experience like U- ux i didn't even know what user experience was at that point right because mm-hmm. i remember even searching for jobs at that time i was like i know what i want to do like i have a feeling like product development every time i would search product development like it would always be like the job descriptions on indeed would always come back as like ux and wireframes i'm like what is this? Like wire, like actually, you know, mechanical engineer, I'm like building things with f- wire and frames. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is this thing? And I just was like, I-, I don't know what this is. I don't think this is what, am I, what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And so I got into these, these PhD programs. I think, of, I think it was CMU and Virginia Tech. But like, I remember looking at some of the projects coming out of the Georgia Tech program, the HCI program, particularly like their interactive products lab. Mm-hmm. But like just, products in general and i was like these things seem cool i'll do that i'm gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> master's degree and then like you know i always it goes go into a phd afterwards if i want but i was like these projects look cool like they're they were speaking to me the work mm-hmm. i didn't really know anything about hci or ux at all but the projects coming out of the space were like things that i felt like oh, that's the type of stuff i want to make mm-hmm. so I decided kind of to come down to Atlanta and Georgia Tech. Kind of, it was it was kind of on a coin flip type of whim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, let me give this a try and see how it goes. That's kind of how I ended up down here. <laughs> okay, I mean, I think you came down here at a time when, like, I mean, in terms of just like the tech and the startup industry and things like that. I mean. Shit was popping down here by, by the time you came here. I mean, yeah. you're at, you're at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech has the, uh, the ATDC, which is the right. Atlanta. I forget what, what the acronym yeah, is for. I, something we, we Technical know. Development Center. But yeah. Yes. Technology Development Center, something like that. Yeah. Like the oldest accelerator in the country. Like I said, I had only ever been to Atlanta, like through the airport before. Yeah. I was like very much like a Northeastern kid playing in the area between New York, Philly, and D.C., like that was kind of my comfort zone. So I didn't know. I knew very little about Atlanta when I came down here. But my kind of personality is like whenever I go somewhere, I really try to like be in that city. Like I want to know more about it and, mm-hmm. and get involved like quickly. So I came to the HCI program and immediately like I was like, this is very different from engineering school, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are people who are like artists, People coming from journalism and psychology and computer science, like these are all my classmates now. And and that was refreshing. I was like, this is cool because art and engineering was so separate in my experience. And to be in that space where having all these people together in like these classes was really cool. And I was learning stuff that I hadn't learned before. Like the first class that they teach you, you know, that they have you learn in, in Georgia Tech HCI is like user research methods, which is basically like a psychology class. Mm-hmm. And I, I never took any psychology in engineering school. And so, you know, it, it was just new information, new personalities, people, a lot of international students. So that was nice, nice change of pace. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me more of like the environment I grew up in at home. And so I like I learned a lot of things in that program. And, and it was really fun. I, I had a really great time in grad school. And at the same time, like you said, like Atlanta, like around 2016, 2017, like things were really apparently starting to pop off. Like you felt like there was an energy. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like I felt like I was like, I came here. I was like, this. I didn't feel this up in the Northeast. Things were really moving. Mm-hmm. And I remember like one of the turning points 
for me being like me attending, you know, cause I was at Georgia tech and HCI program is in tech square. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to events at tech square labs back in the day. Do you remember tech square labs? I do. Yeah. 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 Being in a space where I was like, all these are black innovators. I was like, this, <laughs> this is something that I've never been a part of before. This is cool. Yeah. This is cool. Cause like the, just by circumstance, it just, you know, it's not that I haven't met, you know, black innovators before. One of my best favorite professors in undergrad, you know, was a black innovator, but it was just like the amount and the culture that came with it. As I mentioned before, like I love those spaces that are kind of lit and innovative. Right. 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 <laughs> and so I was like, this is lit and innovative. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is what I want. This is it. So that was like, for me, that almost kind of sold the city on me. I was like, this is a place I need to be. It feels like a small town, but it has big city opportunities. Mm-hmm. It feels like a place where like my ideas like would be encouraged. Yeah. I could go and 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 try and pursue them in, in real. And so, yeah, like I kind of started getting involved. Like that was my first foray into the ecosystem, you know, mm-hmm. hanging out over there, going to startup battle. Yeah. All <laughs> with CreateX um, at Georgia Tech. That that was kind of the start for me. So, yeah, that was what really kind of sold Atlanta to me to a point where when it came to the end of grad school and most of my peers were going to, you know, New York or the West Coast. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I could have gone home and made a lot of money and like saved some money too. <laughs> 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 going back to Jersey. But I was like, I, I feel like I need to be over here. Yeah. You know, I feel like I need to be here for what's going on and be a part of this ecosystem. Man. So <laughs> that's why I decided to stay. And it wasn't always the easiest path, but I just felt like, you know, it was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Tech Square Labs, co-founded by Morehouse grad, Dr. Paul Judge. Yep. yep. Yeah. There was a lot of people that I work with regularly or more now that I'm, I let them know, like, hey, you know, that event that you put on six years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a big part of me staying around in Atlanta. So it just goes to show that you never know who you're influencing yeah. when you when you do these things that, you know, because I feel like that encouraged me to stay and then also be a value add to the ecosystem. Mm. No, the whole just like, I mean, Atlanta itself already has this really rich history of I'm loath to use the term black excellence, but I feel like that kind of right. does apply with with Atlanta because, I mean, one, yeah. you have this very rich history of entrepreneurship, but also like a super rich history of political activism, civic engagement, et cetera. Like yeah. you can see black people at every level of social strata exactly. in Atlanta and it feels normal. It feels, you know, to a black person, like it feels right. You know, like it feels like yes. this yeah. is a place where you could come and like really make some kind of dream that you might have come true, which is probably why a lot of people move here, which is probably why now it's getting so expensive here. But <laughs> certainly back <laughs> yes. then, that yes, energy was so palpable. Okay. Well, no, but I mean, that energy was so palpable, particularly in in tech and like with in and around Georgia Tech, you know, Tech yes. Square Labs, et cetera. There were so many like startups popping up and things of that nature. And like for me who have been like, I've been doing startup work here since 2008. 
it was just so great to see the city feel like it was finally starting to come into its own as a place that was not Silicon Valley, was right. not New York. Because, you know, I can tell you for a long time, people did not look at Atlanta as any kind of a tech city. I mean, there was Georgia Tech, but they didn't look at Atlanta, the city as a whole, as like a place where we want to, you know, start a business here or we want to open an office here. They just thought, I don't know, we were all down here barefoot blowing on brown jugs or something like that. They just did not look at (laughs) Atlanta as like a, a city for innovation, a city for that kind of stuff. And it has grown, I want to say, gradually. And I think a lot of that is because of the infrastructure that a lot of black people have created here, as well as just like an influx of, honestly, an influx of money from tourism has really helped a lot as well, you know, to just kind of bring people here in general. And then to see what opportunities are available is another thing. Like I talked to so many folks who just not moved here on a whim, but like they came here and then all of a sudden they're doing something else or they found another lane or avenue to venture into that might've been different from what they did back home. But because of the ecosystem here, they're able to kind of branch into something new and be successful doing that. Right. It's actually a wonderful, it's a wonderfully diverse economy. And I think that that has helped it so much because it attracts a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. So people come here for work or for school, like myself, because of certain hallmark industries. But then what's changed is the culture is keeping people here mm-hmm. more. So it's making it once people come, they see like, Hey, like this is, I see Eric down there. He seems like he's thriving. He's living, you know, or I came to visit him. Oh, I didn't know it was like this. Now I, I want to be down here too. Right. So, you know, it's a domino effect when you have something like that, but that kind of goes back to my point is the things that made it work and made it accelerate so fast pre pandemic was, was a lot of grassroots, ecosystem development, right? People doing the work on the ground to create these programs. So I feel like we have to keep that in mind that that's a big part of what makes the place feel real and feel good. Like tonight is one of my favorite events in the city. I haven't been to it since before the pandemic, but have you heard of Controllerize? No. What's that? Controllerize is this event. There's a couple of offshoots now, but before the pandemic, it was like this event and one of the first events where it was like, hey, if you're you into anime, you into video games, you into lo-fi hip hop, you into freestyling and DJ culture, you into art, come to this get together mm-hmm. Monday nights. And it's grown. It's huge now. But it was this place where like I met a lot of people there, did networking there. It was another third place where people come, hang out, they play games, they they get drinks and food. They have every video game set up on the side that you can imagine. Wow. And, you know, that that was kind of part of it, you know, like that was another thing. I was like, this this is a place I used to go there and network. This is the networking events that I like to go to. People freestyling, dancing. A lot, a lot of technologists would go there and hang out. So you eventually you would always inevitably run into somebody who you could collab with or or give you some advice. Wow. I'm looking it up now. Controller it's like controller, like a game controller. Controllerize. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it's real cool. It's a really cool vibe. It happens at Monday Night Garage, but it started out small. You know, started out as a small thing, a couple video games, some lo-fi hip-hop, food and drinks, maybe a vendor or two. And it's kind of grown into huh. this 
this forest to the point where there's a couple, a lot of offshoots of it now. Like there's like trap sushi. There's this thing, event called the lag because people realize like people, this is like black nerd heaven, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you said it started at Monday Night Garage? It started, no, it actually started years ago. It started by maybe 2017, 2018. Okay. At like smaller restaurants. There used to be, they eventually settled at this place called The Deep End, which used to be across the street from Pond City Market. And they uh-huh. were there for a while. And then that place closed and they moved to Monday Night Garage. And now the event's so big that like it takes up the whole garage. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been since the pandemic. They just started like again for the first time in like two and a half years. Oh, wow. Monday Night Garage is literally like around the corner for me. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea. Wow. I'm going to have to check it out. Wow. Yeah, it's super cool, man. It's a really cool spot. Um, Really cool vibe. The people who found it, like I said, just it started off very, very grassroots. And now it's just kind of this very unique cultural force that's like, it's very unique. Like to Atlanta, like I would bring people there from out of town and they were like, yeah, I've never even seen anything like this, like outside of maybe in like Spider-Verse, you know? Like, Oh, man. Don't tell me that. Now I definitely got to check it out. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. So to kind of, I guess, you know, move things a little bit forward, because you're talking about startups. In 2018, you started a startup called Wallamoo, which is around like esports tech. And now you're also part of another startup now called Eat Unrestricted. First, tell me about Wallamoo and tell me like about how you may be able to use lessons from that with Eat Unrestricted. So Wallamoo was kind of like my, you know, I was in grad school and I was creating in ways that I had never really thought to before, right? A lot of my creative work was based on inventions like physical products, right? But, you know, being in an HCI program, I was learning really more about human-centered principles. And I was also, you know, away from home and my cooking skills have always been, you know, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I oftentimes would uh, call my mom while I was like cooking on the phone and I would have her on WhatsApp video or whatever. And I'd be like, yo, can you walk me through? Mm-hmm. And basically she would take the video and let me ask me, Hey, let me see what you're doing. I'll add this much. Stop. Okay. Put another piece in this and that. And kind of walk me through on video through these processes, you know, and same thing, you know, if I like was doing something and I needed my pop's help mm-hmm. and he could come on video and help me out. Hey, oh, water heater. Let me take a look at this. And I was like, you know, not everybody has these resources, the, this ability for live help. Mm-hmm. People will go on YouTube or forums or Reddit or whatever, right? But not everybody can have somebody who they can talk to in live to coach them through whatever they're trying to figure out in the moment and ask their specific questions and get encouragement. Right. So that was kind of like what the idea was born from. So I was like, this would be a live help marketplace. A marketplace where people could kind of get that mom or dad kind of type of assistance, whether they're trying to change a tire or they're braiding their hair for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I was really into that idea and I applied to like CreateX and I applied to Ascend 2020, which was being run by Morehouse Innovation Entrepreneurship Center. And so this was my like first real foray into entrepreneurship. And, you know, it wasn't physical product based, but I was like, I was like this is a really compelling problem, I feel like. So I started doing that startup, but 
something they told me during the process of building this startup is that I needed to focus my marketplace on one particular topic area. And so <laughs> back to control rights, I was going to that pretty frequently. And so I kind of was just like, ah. I was, that's why I was doing customer discovery a lot too. I was just kind of out of the field. You know, and lots of lots of strangers. So I was just asking people I could interview them. It kind of ended up focusing on esports coaching. I was like, oh, you know what? Let me focus on esports coaching for this marketplace. Mm-hmm. Esports was starting to kind of get some momentum, so people were really into it. It was a trendy topic, and so I started doing like esports coaching workshops with some of these esports houses around town. Like, a, there's a black owned one for for esports up in Doraville. Mm-hmm. Another another black owned one was Versus Realm or Esports Arena. So I started doing like esports coaching sessions for, for like kids and it was like a marketplace. And I was building a new website for people to like to book coaches on the platform. You know, basically the idea that like, hey, you can train and with actual coaches and get better at the games that will allow you to become competitive in leagues or win competitions or even get scholarships, which was like a new thing. Like schools are giving away esports scholarships, right? Esports was a sanctioned sport in high school. This is all in like 2018, 2019. So it was still very new, like mm-hmm. all that, all this was out there. So I was doing these things around town, but like around the, it was moving, it was growing, but growing slowly. I think it was kind of maybe ahead of its times in a lot of ways. And like once kind of the pandemic hit and I kind of got into developer snags with developing the new website Uh like momentum for it kind of shifted and i think a large part of that was that not momentum just momentum on the side of things taking their time to finish like the website when i made the switch from this platform that was built around helping people with whatever their needs were to esports i think a little bit of the passion went out of it not because i'm not a gamer i do like playing video games I'm a big fan of like civilization. <laughs> okay. I love, um, I love uh, super smash brothers, but it's not my passion per se. I met people, even people who I would call my friends now in that world, in that ecosystem. And you can tell like when they talk about video games, like their whole soul lights up mm-hmm. and that wasn't it for me. And I felt like, you know, I just wasn't passionate about the topic area. Like coaching kids in esports wasn't, what really lit me up versus the original idea where it, I was like kind of just helping people in a really human to human connection way, figure out things that they may not have been taught by like parents or people who are like mentors. So momentum for that kind of slowed down and then the pandemic hit and like it really slowed down. And the biggest lesson I learned, I guess, about entrepreneurship is that you really got to trust your gut mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day. A lot of it is risk taking, right? You can do customer discovery and you can minimize risk as much as you want. But I think at the end of the day, you can't predict the future. And if you feel strongly about something in your gut, you kind of have to go with it and and live with the decision, live with the the results of that decision. That's what kind of like a a more a deeper lesson that like listen to your mentors, listen to advice, take it in, but then you know, listen to yourself and make a decision at the end of the day. It's hard to teach that, but People are always, there's always going to be a million people who can give you advice. I remember somebody on, like, somebody even told me that, like, that concept that I was pitching was obviated. I was like, really? Because I don't see anybody else doing it. (laughs) (laughs) They were really like, no, you shouldn't do this. 
And I was like, especially like later in the pandemic, I was, I feel like if I had stuck with that original idea, this would have been perfect timing for it. Yeah. So that was kind of like a hard lesson. The other lessons I think you learn like from entrepreneurship, are, there's a lot of intangibles. Like doing entrepreneurship is like one of those things where like three months in, six months in, you're like, you don't even realize, but you could teach a class. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like giving people advice and you're like, whoa, what, where did that come from? Like, I wouldn't have known to give this. It's just like, it's like a business degree, but like on the slick. <laughs> You know, like you're learning all these things that you wouldn't have thought you were going to learn. And then all of a sudden you can teach uh, people how to be entrepreneurs (laughs) all of a sudden, just based on the mistakes or the things that you picked up in the process. So it's hard to say a lot of specifics, but the deepest thing is that gut decision making aspect. Yeah. But there's so many things that I learned. I couldn't list them all. It's just I try to be a good advisor to my partner for um, Unrestricted, who it's my significant other, and we we actually met. We didn't start dating immediately, but we had met for the first time doing interviews for CreateX at Georgia Tech. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were both we were both there waiting for our interviews, and, and, and then we like introduced, like, "What are you? What are you? What, tell me about your company." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's how we met. And so she's really passionate about food yeah. and food inclusivity. That's something we uh, we kind of connected on and. We were both working on different projects during the pandemic and decided to to help out, help out as much as I can with the unrestricted. That's going on, wow, three years now. So, <laughs> Wow. And how's it been? I mean, I've, I looked at the Instagram and I can see like you're at farmer's markets and you're, I think even you got some students at, at Spelman to like taste yeah, test and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. How's it been yeah. going? So, so yeah, it's been going good. Basically... The food industry is, um, it's harder than technology, I think, personally. Oh. <laughs> I think it's harder because it's the ultimate tangible product. It doesn't just have to, you make it and it, that's it. It has to like taste good and it has to commit with people emotionally. And so it comes with all like the emotional struggles that a digital product, like consumers would go through with a digital product mm-hmm. and all the overheads that come with <laughs> like an actual physical product that you make in a factory. So it's capital intensive. So it's really hard, but we've grown steadily over the three years. So that's been a positive sign that people like the product. Everybody who tastes it like really enjoys it. And so, yeah, we're, we, we go to farmer's markets. We're in stores, independent grocers all over the country. A lot, a couple here in Atlanta, of course, where we started out. Right. But, um, you know, we have stores in LA, New York, Philadelphia that, you know, carry our product. And right now we're just, you know, we, you know, talking about doing a lot of things, uh, we're, we're kind of very similar. We both overtax our schedules. Basically, my partner, she works on EOM Restricted, but she's also a product manager at GTRI. Okay. And she's doing, getting her MBA. So. Wow. <laughs> we realized that like, we can't keep cooking the cheese in the kitchen, like, like not our kitchens at home, but in our shared kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Making this product is very time intensive and energy intensive. So we're like in the process of switching to an outside manufacturer and making the product in bulk so that we can kind of just streamline our whole supply chain and provide like 
you'd be able to basically, you know, by streamlining our supply chain, we can probably get larger accounts to buy our product. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. And what we're trying to grow into. But, you know, things like the brand turned out really good. Shout out to Veritas for doing our branding. Like it looks really professional. And so, you know, we feel like we're moving in a really good direction right now. Nice. So, yeah, that's the story of Unrestricted currently. Now, I'm curious how you balance like all of this like entrepreneurial work with the work that you do at Spellman. Because it sounds like the work that you're doing with the Innovation Lab, we didn't even really talk about like the Blackstone Launchpad, but like all this work that you're doing and then you're also doing these entrepreneurial efforts outside of it. Like how do you keep all of that in some level of balance? Yeah, um, very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's no way around that one. Life balancing is very difficult for the both of us. We both, like we just try to do our best to practice self-care and just kind of run our own race because, you know, it's a marathon, not really a race. So that helps the most, I think, right now, trying to keep mental and physical health as best as we possibly can, work on that from time to time, Mm -hmm. rest, take rest, and then not worry about, like, beating anybody to completion or to a certain milestone because that's just going to ramp up the anxiety levels too much. As far as the balance with my, like, my job, I find it has always actually been super symbiotic. So me coming into my position at Spellman with entrepreneurial experience, I've been able to really help a lot with the growth of the entrepreneurship programs at Spellman. Before I came, Sonia Rush had started Spellpreneur and it had been going on for maybe a year or two. But outside of that, there was nothing for entrepreneurship really on campus. Then we started getting some classes. One of some of my students in Innovation Lab started the Entrepreneurship Club. Then, you know, I was part of the committee for center for kind of helping figure out how to get the Center for Black Entrepreneurship off the ground. We have an entrepreneurship minor now, now co-directing the Blackstone Launchpad, which basically helps boost some of the entrepreneurial stuff on campus, including what we have in the Innovation Lab, our fellowships for each of our verticals. So we have a game development fellowship. We have a maker fellowship and then we have an entrepreneurship fellowship. And so we basically pay students to work on their own projects. Wow. Yeah. So it's a pretty cool program. So we run that program. So basically, like entrepreneurship has taken off. And one of the benefits of the personnel in the innovation lab, the team that I work with, is that we all bring our personal connections and networks and knowledge of the ecosystem to the students. So it's been, I think it's been very beneficial to the students. It's kind of was always destined to be this kind of symbiotic thing, because like I mentioned before, a lot of the events that really first sold me on Atlanta, I look at some of the shirts that got from those events. Morehouse Innovation Entrepreneurship Center was one of the sponsoring presenters (laughs) of those events. When I started working at Spellman, right, I was transitioning. I was working as a service designer prior to that or right around that same time. I was working on Wallamoo and I was in a pre-accelerator called Ascend 2020, which was meeting at the Morehouse Leadership Center. So I was like going there weekly for meetups with the cohort. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm working across the street. So it all kind of worked out symbiotically. And so I think 
the stuff that I do on the side as far as entrepreneurship has always felt like it's been kind of a natural benefit to what I do for work mm-hmm. and vice versa. Like the things that I learn in work and the connections, sometimes the connections that I make through Spellman are beneficial to entrepreneurship endeavors. So it works out really well. I think it should be kind of a model to how I personally think we should encourage more faculty to be entrepreneurial on the AEC campuses. I think it only benefits the college personally. That could be debated, but I think it definitely is a big benefit to the schools. <laughs> I feel like you have a lot of advice to give. I'm sure you probably give a lot of advice to students. It's clear you have done a a plethora of things, projects, studying engineering, now doing the innovation lab, et cetera. What right. advice would you give to somebody that's like hearing your story and they want to sort of follow in your footsteps? Like maybe they too are a jack of all trades and, and being told that they're a master of none. Like what would you tell them to kind of keep them motivated? I think, man, for motivation wise, I think one of the biggest motivating factors is just that it seems just like that's how like the trends of our economy and our ecosystem are leading to valuing people who can be flexible to different roles. Mm-hmm. So for a person, I guess starting out is even though for me, I talked about like not wanting to be pigeonholed and this and that. Right. But part of being a jack of all trades is being open to picking up all these different experiences. My girlfriend jokes about this to me, but like when I was growing up with my dad, my dad worked in, had a construction company. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did was we built out, we like built out or helped renovate food manufacturing plants. So that was like one of my core memories growing up is like working in these manufacturing plants that make some of our favorite foods and being like, this is dirty. I'm never going to work here again. <laughs> I never want to be in this situation <laughs> working in the roofs of these warehouses. And now, I'm helping my girlfriend make food, Mm -hmm. (laughs) manufacture food. I've learned so much about the food industry from the manufacturer standpoint, distribution, you know, lead times. It's a whole ecosystem. It's a whole thing. Now that's knowledge in my, in my banks that I could like, I can share with somebody else or I can apply it to like consulting or whatever. Right. Like I have that tangible knowledge and time experience because I've been working with ER Restricted that I wouldn't have had otherwise, right? I never thought I would be making cheese at, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning (laughs) (laughs) and the next day have to go in and critique a student's painting and then help somebody with Python code. Yeah. (laughs) That's part of what gets you these experiences, right? You're just being open to all these different worlds. So my advice with them would be, you know, be open to these weird, weird directions that life could take you. Make sure you document where you've been and build networks wherever you go, because that's also, you know, allows you to be a, a connector and to be that person at the nexus of all these different silos that could connect people who never probably would have been connected before. I consider myself like a nexus because I play in academia, but I also I have a lot of my friends are still heavily into the design world, you know, whether it's service design or the local, you know, IXDA. Right. So you get to play in a lot of different worlds, 
you know, so it's just really about being open to different experiences and then leveraging the connections and the knowledge that you've gotten from all these different experiences to create new connections and new things. I think that's really like my advice to anybody who's interested in following, I guess, my path. Mm. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years? Like, what do you want the next chapter of of your story to be? Oh, Maurice, I'm trying to figure that out, man. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm working on a company called IO Toys. And I feel like this is my first self-driven entrepreneurial endeavor since Wallamoo. I'm excited about it because I think it's more at the core of what I like making, which is like crazy, interactive, cutting-edge technology. So like I'm working on this one product that's I'm trying to make you know, create do haptic feedback for holograms. That's something that I'm really excited about. And so I want to announce it and then maybe, you know, I don't know, try to get into some accelerators or I'm not really sure how I want to run this business. I just know that I do. I have these ideas and I want to put them out there and see where they go. I'm always going to have new ideas, but this is like one of the, I think the most core to like my passion, like I want to pursue and see where it goes. So right now, like the way I'm kind of organizing my mental plan is I'm going to see where this IO toys thing goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then like after that, like I might just try to get into consulting or something like that. <laughs> something simple. <laughs> Cause I think one of the things like with the person with as many ideas as I have, you can always be working on something new. So like you could do that forever, but it can get tiring too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If we're talking about, if we're, if we're being real about it, right? Like there, <laughs> there is a limited amount of energy mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can really like put into every idea that you have. So right now, I think, right, I'm going to like put my energy into seeing where this goes. And then after that, I might try to like simplify a little bit while still doing things that I like. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about this. I like did a logo for it that I think came out like really good. Uh, let me paraphrase. I have never been a good visual designer. Mm-hmm. Good user researcher. I think I'm good at designing you like customer journeys. I think I'm good at designing concepts, strategies. Visually though, nah. <laughs> <laughs> My best user interfaces that I designed were the ones that I like screenshotted other user interfaces into sketch mm-hmm. and like picked them apart and made my own. And those were mid at best. But like I did a logo for IO Toys that like I'm pretty proud of. I did um incorporate somebody else's um design work. I mean I, I redid it and like made it my own, but I'm gonna cite them in the logo. Somebody off of Dribble. But I incorporate some of the elements that they used into the logo. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud of it. I think it's like one of my best logos that I've ever designed. Nice. So I'm excited. I'm excited about this. Nice. We'll see where that goes. That'll be the next step. And then obviously see where how unrestricted goes. Gotcha. And then seeing how the innovation lab continues <laughs> to <laughs> See how yeah, all so the a other lot of, a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah, right I, was, I was just about to say that. Like, see how how the other irons in the fire will will yeah. keep going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I bought a house, so I'm like, you know, that's a, that's a whole monster in and of itself, man. Like, <laughs> nice, congratulations. <laughs> thank you, thank you. 
lots of juggling going on right now. It's cool, you know. I definitely had an exciting time in the city. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? I would say I'm like active on LinkedIn. So I try to like document the stuff I do there. It just becomes kind of a repository for me at this point of like the stuff that I do. So if I ever forget, I can just go back and look through my posts. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. The Spellman Innovation Lab Instagram at Spellman IL. So I post what we do in the lab there. I try to document a lot of the work so that people have a really good idea of like the feels of the lab and the vibe and so on. My personal website is pericthompson.myportfolio.com. And you can get to that from my LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I mean, I have a personal Instagram, but it's like, you know, it's more it's more casual. It's um, et.yamakasa, so um, L-L-A-M-A-C-A-S-A. So those are the channels that you can find me. That's pretty much where I mostly post my all my stuff. I think that's it. Oh, and then um, at Eat Unrestricted is the company, the, the vegan cheese company. All right. I'll make sure that we put all those links and everything in the show notes. But Eric Thompson, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I know we had we had first met like back in 2019 doing a I did a podcasting workshop, a two day workshop at Spellman through the Innovation Lab. And so one, it's great to catch up with you again. But then I didn't know that your story was so rich, I guess is kind of the best way to put it. Like you've done (laughs) so much stuff. I feel like you're like an idea factory. Like there's also just a lot of things that you can do, but just the fact that you're also in a position where you're giving back to, you know, not just the students at Spelman, but like also to just like the entire like Spelman community, staff, faculty, and then continuing to do stuff here in the city. Like these are the kind of success stories I think more people really need to hear about, especially from people like us that are like Jack of all trades. Like, You've yeah. managed to take all of your disparate interests and like form them into this career and life and it all is working for you. And so for me, that's super inspiring. And I hope for people that are listening that, uh, that it's inspiring as well. So thank you for, for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here and yeah, keep doing what you're doing. This podcast is great. So, you know, we appreciate that. Big, big thanks to Eric Thompson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Eric and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you liked this episode, please let us know. 
We're on social media on both Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, just all one word, Revision Path. Or you could follow us on Spotify, on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you could leave a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.